Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And tonight we are going to be talking about handouts and props in your games. Exciting stuff. Before we do that, there's a bit of news, isn't there? At last on Kickstarter, there is now video of the new 7th edition books, physical items being filmed. They exist! Yep. Pages being flipped. In a nice slip case, uh, which all the books fit into. And they look bloody gorgeous. So we just have to wait now for them to come from China to distribution and then from distribution to our letterboxes. Mm, Yeah, so it's probably still going to be another couple of months at least. But, yeah, (laughs) at least... It's how long it's a piece of string. Who knows? I'm still waiting for the day my postman has a hernia delivering all those boxes. (laughs) But at least we can see what it's going to look like when it turns up. Oh, and yes. The answer is pretty. And Matt, what's going on with you? Well, I'm, I saw the video for the unboxing and uh, or de-slipping of the, bo- um, the books while I was away at Conception last week. For one thing, the Ho- um, Hoburn Nash Wi-Fi has definitely got better. You can, you can actually stream video over it now. <laughs> you might want to explain to people what Conception is before they get the wrong idea. Well, it's when a man and a woman... But no. <laughs> Let's not go that way again. Okay, so this is a games convention that you went to last week, Matt. What, it's about four days? Yeah, it starts on Wednesday night and goes through until Sunday night. On the south coast of England. Yep, or as we uh, knew, it's pretty much the eye of the hurricane. Uh, it was wet. It was windy. It was very, very, very wet. I don't even remember bad weather here. Was it bad weather? You wouldn't know, Scott. You probably didn't even open your curtain. <laughs> yeah, Did you open your I, curtain? No, I, I, I'm oblivious to the outside world. I, I only come out of my front door to come along and record the podcast. Apart from that, no. He no. says door. When he says that, <laughs> he means like a rock that he pushes away from the <laughs> cave entrance. Yeah. I picture you like a hermit, Scott. Yeah, not far off. <laughs> but I know, it's really, really bad weather. I mean, they've had, they've had snow, they've had ice down there before, but this was really, really, really wet. Um, Listeners in New York should totally ignore what Matt just said, <laughs> given the recent storms in New York. Well, it was, the, it was the leftover storm from that after it had made its way across the Atlantic. And anyway, this is British weather. Yes, it's constantly shit. <laughs> um, but, but at least it's varying kinds of shit. Oh, yeah, it's consistently inconsistent. No, we have loads of people were delayed getting down there after train, uh, train lines were flooded, roads were flooded. One of the players to my game was about six hours late getting to, um, getting to the site. So there was only about another six hours of game left. <laughs> yeah, only. <laughs> no, I only overran in one game this time. Good ah. God. And even then, that was by 15 minutes, I think. Not your usual Gosh. four hours. So I did that on a Sunday night slot one time when there wasn't any reason to get up in the morning afterwards apart from to check out. <laughs> but no, no, I uh, managed to get pretty much on, on time this uh, this time round, which was yeah, definitely a shock for me. Discipline. Uh, yeah, I've been had, had it hammered into me now. <laughs> well, there were a couple of incidents there which are going uh, to come up as anecdotes in our discussion. Yeah, as I tend to run, most of my games do have either props or handouts in them. Mm. Yeah, I've certainly been witness to one or two of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, t- we took uh, one Heaven and Earth game to, uh, to a different level with interactive props, shall we say. Okay, well, we'll come, we'll come back to this soon. But before that, it's time for our Lovecraftian word of the, um, what's it? 
And now, it's the Lovecraftian word of the week. Our Lovecraftian word of the week, that's week, Scott, not thingy or hoodrum flip or what's it, is hinted. To hint, to express or state indirectly. She hinted that she might prefer our company to theirs. Sounds like any, any girl I've talked to before previously. <laughs> or to indicate or make evident in an indirect manner. Now, this may seem, again, like a bit of an odd choice because it's a, a fairly commonplace word. But on the other hand, it's something that Lovecraft used, I think, to great effect in a number of his stories. Because a lot of his stories play around with the idea that there are these secrets that are too hideous to actually share directly. They are spoken of in hints and metaphors and insinuations. You get these examples in some of his stories where people read these hideous hints in the Necronomicon or whatever, hints at the the true nature of humanity's origins and stuff like that. And that led me to think that hint, or hinted in this particular case, is very much actually a Lovecraftian word. Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly surprised by the words that you choose, Scott, because several of the words that you've chosen aren't ones that I would have selected. I would have stuck with the stereotypical Lovecraftian words like non-Euclidean and Batrachian and uh, things like that, uh, the eldritch and so on, all those words that we kind of associate strongly with Lovecraft. But some of these ones you've been choosing, actually when you think about it, for all the reasons you just stated, when Lovecraft uses them, they take on something else. Exactly. Shall we take a look at some of the ways Lovecraft used? Hinted. First of all, from the rats and the walls. They represented my ancestors as a race of hereditary demons, beside whom Gilles de Ray and the Marquis de Sade would seem the various tyros, and hinted whisperingly at their responsibility for the occasional disappearance of villagers through several generations. And from the Call of Cthulhu. One sight of the thing had been enough to throw the assembled men of science into a state of tense excitement and they lost no time in crowding around him to gaze at the diminutive figure whose utter strangeness and air of genuinely abysmal antiquity hinted so potently at unopened and archaic vistas. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Could it be possible that here lay the mortal relics of half the titan thinkers of all the ages, snatched by supreme ghouls from crypts where the world thought them safe, and subject to the beck and call of madmen who sought to drain their knowledge for some still wilder end, whose ultimate effect would concern, as poor Charles had hinted in his frantic note, all civilization, all natural law, perhaps even the fate of the solar system and the universe? Well, before we launch into our main discussion, I suppose I'd better explain what prompted this topic suggestion which is our good friend Tom Pleasant made a delightful birthday present for me last year. It was a dossier of documents that told a story. It was newspaper extracts and reports from mental asylums uh, and all sorts of weird and wonderful things, letters, extracts from journals. And he did a wonderful job of actually turning them into physical artefacts. They they were all laid out electronically, but he used a variety of fonts for handwriting. He aged the paper by dipping it in tea, I assume. It it has that look, or perhaps burning it in places. 
And the end result was just this fantastic artefact. It's not really something, well, we could possibly use it in a game, but it's sort of filled with uh, good friends of Jackson Elias in jokes and stuff like that, at the same time as being a really effective little horror story. And it's, it's a terrific thing all around. But it got me thinking about, you know, the amount of work involved in creating something like that and the amount of work that people sometimes put into creating these handouts and, and props that we use at the gaming table and what wonderful and cool things they can be. So it's effectively a mythos, this is your life, is what you're <laughs> it saying. It pretty much was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or these are the horrific events leading up to your life. <laughs> <laughs> And now for our main topic, handouts and props. Now, between us, we've played we've played a lot of games, and I imagine that the variety of props and handouts that we've seen in various games have taken lots of different forms. I mean, I can think of quite a few myself. When I mean, you've got newspaper articles, um, that's yeah. always a good staple for Call of Cthulhu about murder found in Next Street Over. So. Yeah, they, they do seem to be the definitive Call of Cthulhu handouts. Those, and to a lesser extent, journal extracts and letters and things like that. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. illustrations. Yes. I photocopied and used illustrations from some of the uh, scenario books. I think here we're not really talking about atmosphere and, you know, like the use of candles and dim lighting and those real-world effects that you might bring in to create an atmosphere. This is more about things that you can give the players that relate directly to the story in hand. And those also include things like maps or physical representations of things that are happening at the table. I, mean, I suppose even a classic example is miniatures. Uh, we won't really go into the use of miniatures in Call of Cthulhu here, but miniatures... I mean, they don't tend to get used too much in most games of Call of Cthulhu I've seen, or at least not in the traditional sort of, you know, here's your battle map, here's how things move around. It's more you're being stalked through the corridors by something hideous and dripping slime, and it looks a bit like this. I think the battle map and miniatures is more about a, a tactical representation that facilitates, you know, using the rules properly and, you know, seeing positioning whereas handouts and props are more, more about expressing elements of the story. Let's talk about some of the handouts and props that have particularly impressed us. So let's throw out a few that we've really liked. Well, the first one I can remember specifically impressing me, and th this is a, a very kind of minor thing, but it just, it showed me, or at least opened up my mind to what some of the possibilities were with, with uh, handouts and artefacts at the table. And it's in the original Masks of Neolithotep box set. The, the box set was absolutely full of handouts. There were newspaper clippings and articles galore. But one of them that was in there was a matchbox. And it was presented just as a printout and you had to cut it out and assemble it and glue it together, but it made this matchbox with a sliding drawer in it. And it had a print on it uh, which had the name of a nightclub and this was a clue. This was somewhere the investigators were supposed to go and investigate. But it was just, I don't know, it was one of the first printed campaigns I'd ever run. It was a very early experience of Call of Cthulhu for me as a keeper. And it was just sort of, oh yeah, handout, handout, Oh blimey! They, I mean, they, they, this is this is like something physical. This is so cool. I like that they followed that on with um, Horror on the Orient Express, 
where you get um, the individual parts of the Sedefkar simulacrum as you go from one chapter to the next, and you slowly build up this model one piece at a time. Mm. Slowly, slowly putting it all together. I remember the early days of playing D&D, and... Yeah, we had our character sheets and the, the DM had his screen and we were, you know, I don't know, 13, 14-year-olds playing wizards and fighters and things. But then got given this little screwed up piece of paper that the, the, the DM had stained with tea and <laughs> kind of scrawled runes on. And, and, you know, like you said, Scott, it's kind of like you step into the game. It's almost like, oh, I thought this just in my head, but it's real. Yeah, it's a, a bit of the game. Of that. It's yes. a bit of the game I can touch with my hands. Yes. And that tactile thing is, yeah, it just entertains the senses in a way that just, you know, looking at some numbers on a piece of paper just doesn't quite do. Thinking of numbers on a piece of paper, that's actually one of the most effective handouts I can remember having seen. Paul Lawrence ran a game using Savage Worlds Realms of Cthulhu. We were sat in the main canteen hall. They've got these big wide tables and we needed them (laughs) because we had, I think it must have easily been nine sheets of paper. Um, Each one was done up as a telegram. Each one then had a series of numbers and words, almost like alphanumeric code, which when you finally had all of them together, you could realise, right, this means that this goes in this particular grid reference, this goes in the next grid reference. And it told you how to lay out the grid of all these pa- uh, pieces of paper. The message that was written out on the telegram had various word or various letters highlighted or in italics or in a different font, which then when again you read the whole thing in order, suddenly spelled out another message. And there was a watermark that ran through the whole thing as well that also then put together a pattern on top of all this that you'd then need later on in the, uh, later on in the game. That is so you, Matt. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can that, see you <laughs> would love that. Oh, yeah. I, I sat there with, with Alina putting this scene together for, must have been easily half an hour, just in, kind of enthralled going, no, that bit goes over there. No, hang on a minute. Ah! <laughs> and yeah, I, I loved it. It was great. Well, Mr. Lawrence is famous for his handouts, isn't he? Oh, God, uh, yes. It, wasn't it Paul who ran uh, that Thunderbirds game, was it? Or Captain Scarlet or whatever? He does Captain Scarlet, yeah. Where, where he'd made hats for everyone. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I can recall in a game of yours, Matt, set in America, when we were researching some uh, Mayan ruins. Oh, the, um, the and, one in the Dust Bowl, yes. Yeah, and, and we were like, you, you find this statue. Wait a minute. And you fumble around in your bag and uh, unwrap this thing that must have weighed about four or five pounds made of soapstone. Mm-hmm. And it is a statue of some it's man co- god. Kotlaku. Kotlaku. And, and there it is. And you're like, here you go. And yeah, it's like, wow, this is the thing that we actually found. And it's real and yeah, Just with less blood stains. Yeah. <laughs> well, you could fix that, Matt. Oh, I've got the thing up on the shelf at home. I quite like having it. As a, <laughs> I spent enough importing that thing from the States. Although I did get an interesting look from an, uh, from airport security when I lugged that thing to Gen Con <laughs> and ran the game there with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is dedication. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that only would have been made worse if we'd explained what it was for. And the bloodstains on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the most impressive sets of handouts I can remember seeing at the gaming table was actually in a game all three of us played. I think. This was uh, a game James Mullen ran at MKRPG some time back. Uh, it was his Over the Edge campaign. How I, how I Saved the World on the Path to Enlightenment, if I remember that right. That was yes. the one. Uh, if I remember correctly, he put together a number of religious pamphlets or tracts mm-hmm. that actually had all these acrostics and other word puzzles and hidden messages in them. Uh, you know, what appeared to be typos at first, but if you followed the, the misspellings, they spelled out stuff. Including the character sheets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
because this was very shortly after my bad experience at Continuum uh, of having to solve puzzles in games for two fucking hours. Uh, yeah, I was perhaps a bit less well disposed towards them at the time than I might have been. But I mean, happily, you were like a pig and shit there, weren't you, Matt? I, yeah, Matt stopped playing the game for the rest of the evening and just sat there as soon as he realised there were puzzles in there. And the rest of us carried on role-playing while Matt was sitting there just scratching away on the bit of paper, solving all these puzzles. Give Matt a puzzle and you'll keep him happy for hours. Oh, yes. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, as in-game artefacts and as sheer cleverness for props, I mean, those were just amazing. <laughs> Regardless of my feelings of solving games as a player, I can't help but admire and you know, applaud the craft involved in doing that. Admittedly, yeah. moving into a, into a LARP context, a um, very good friend of mine, Paul Regan, uh, ran a year-long Mortals campaign um, set in World of Darkness, say Mortals, just using the uh, generic World of Darkness blue book rules. And he used props that originally he had... Cause remember, that, uh, this is a bugbear that you've had before that you've mentioned, Scott, where you prepare a pl- uh, prop and then it never gets used. Oh, yes, yeah. He had done this maybe 10 years ago. Um, built this little clay um, called Mother Earth goddess-type statuette. And then it never appeared in the game because the players never found it. So he kept hold of this thing. It's been moved around from box to box. It got moved around from one story to the next and eventually came full circle back to him. And he finally got to use it in the um, in the Mortals game he ran, to the point where not only did he use it, we found it in the room that he had decorated up that we had to use our phone lights to work our way towards uh, towards it because he cut the power in that in that area, blacked out the windows, and it was pitch black. Um, he had everything set in the room, and this thing was on this little plinth in the corner um, that he had set up like an alcove or a shrine. We had to smash that damn thing open. I mean, it was. Almost solid terracotta with a metal tube in the middle of it that we had to smash our way to get to, remove the tube, then take out the papyrus sheet of paper inside that had a reference number on it that we had to use in a, and that we had to use in a ritual. We screwed the <laughs> ritual up big time, but my god, it took us a long time to break into that bloody statue. <laughs> so that, that, that took up to a, to a bit of a different level for me. I, I really take my hat off to the man. He he went above and beyond for anything he did for that game. That sounds really impressive. I mean, LARPs are a thing unto themselves. You know, we're primarily kind of considering tabletop here, but we, we've all been involved in LARPs to a greater or lesser degree. Where you are interacting with the environment, you know, the use of props and so on is almost essential within that. But obviously, that's, that's a great example, Matt. One of the most impressive things I can remember seeing in a, a game actually came from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's LARP that they ran at uh, Miskatonicon in Stockholm that we, we all went to. Eleven to- years ago. Uh-huh. Oh, don't. They did some magnificent stuff. They got someone who worked in the movie industry and made uh, special effects props uh, professionally to create all sorts of uh, basically foam latex body parts floating in fake blood and so on. Which, uh, Gallons of it, from I'm yeah. right. Oh, yes. And apparently, you know, because they left this in a van overnight with crime scene tape around it and didn't tell the local police, apparently when they came back the following day, they found crime scene tape around their crime scene tape <laughs> and real police crawling around. And real police asking what these fingers in boxes were. <laughs> and refusing to believe that they were fake because they looked too realistic. <laughs> that was a good game. <laughs> but there was a very small thing that impressed me in that. They asked us ahead of time to send photographs. 
Oh, yes, yes, I remember this now. Yeah, and at some point we broke into a building, and again, it turned out we actually did break into the building, but that's another story. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, we went into this derelict office building, and we found some dossiers in there, and the dossiers had all been set up uh, with our personal details and these photographs that they'd sent but they were photographs that had been modified to make us all look terminally ill. And looking at those, I mean, it was just really fucking creepy. Suddenly seeing this this medical file on yourself, just with this picture of you looking terminally ill and talking about your progression into you know terminal cancer or whatever it was. And it was horrifying. <laughs> I remember mine had this, um, I'd been slightly grinning in the original photo and it had been pretty much turned upside down. <laughs> Um, to the point where I look so miserable in that thing. About 10 years ago, myself and some companions ran a scenario called Gatsby and the Great Race. And it features an artifact which I could have made ahead of time, but it just didn't occur to me. We'd been busy getting the scenario ready and planning everything out. And, and then they all looked at me and said, well, where's the artifact? I'm like... Yeah. Considering the artifact is actually made of pottery, yeah. and you are a potter, yeah, you ended up making it out of cardboard, didn't you, Paul? I did. You are a <laughs> failure as a potter. <laughs> it was shameful. And, uh, but then, you know, we did run it subsequently, and I did make uh, a, f- a, few, uh, a few artifacts for it. But I really have to push myself to think of doing these things, because mm. it just doesn't occur to me. I, I really admire it when other people use them, and, and I think they're very effective. But it's always like the last thing I think of. Yeah. Uh, and I find the same thing in, in some of the scenarios I've, I've worked on. And you get to the end and you think, okay, that's job done. And then you kind of, oh, actually, we could put some handouts in there. Oh, yeah. that would make a good handout. Let's th- and, and it's kind of layering it on there. But if I was just running it myself, it probably wouldn't occur to me. Yeah. I, when we wrote The Two-Headed Serpent, for example, I knew at several stages that there had to be handouts for particular things. And I think when the two of you ran it, the sort of um, halting handouts that I gave you uh, were just sort of <laughs> like one-line summaries of, you know, this is what the document will contain. <laughs> yeah, to be filled in later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that reminds me, I mean, another thing that we, the two of us worked on where we actually did go to town uh, making handouts was the London box set. Oh, yes. Yeah, Yeah, this was interesting because we were commissioned fairly late in the process to uh, beef up the number of of handouts that are actually included in the box set. And if you've seen the London box set, you know it includes uh, something like three or four sheets of cards with punch-out train tickets and uh, other little uh, bits of ephemera. (laughs) And I think Matt and I wrote about two-thirds of those between us. Yeah, I think it was easily half. Yeah. I still think the the one that came to mind for me really early on was because me being my love of the king in yellow, having a um, stub from the British Library with the different uh, different books that have been checked out that spelt "Have you found the yellow sign?" going down uh, going down the left hand side. <laughs> yeah, the one that amused me the most that that I put together was the coffin ticket from the Necropolis oh. line, just stamped "Return" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for when they come back. Yes. <laughs> A while back, a friend of the good friends, Corey Welch, contacted us to say that he was going to run your scenario, Scott, Blackwater Creek. And he asked us to record the handouts. So we recorded them one at a time, and he's used those in his actual game. He's played them 
uh, as as props, if you like, as audio props to his players. Yeah, because it was done over Skype. Uh, every time they found an artifact, instead of just sending them a PDF, he just played them the recording. And I believe this is actually going to go out over Skype of Cthulhu sometime in late March, I think. Sometime around then. Mm. So, uh, yes, if you want to hear our dulcet tones on something other than the good friends of Jackson Lies, listen out for those recordings. Sometimes, if I'm stuck for an idea for a proper handout or something, I will sometimes just steal. And I saw an idea uh, that someone had posted on RPG Net many years ago, which was when they were running the jailbreak scenario for Unknown Armies. One of the characters in it has a gun. But part of the setup of it is they're not quite sure how many bullets are left in it. And, you know, you sort of, when you're playing it at the table, you sort of wait as the, the GM to spring the surprise on them after they fired a certain number of times, unless they've specifically checked that, oh, yeah, you, you, you pull the trigger and it goes click. And it normally happens at the worst possible time. The idea which I stole from someone, which has worked brilliantly the two or three times I've run this, is to use a cap gun, where the the roll of caps or the strip of caps is hidden inside the gun. And you just put that many bullets in there. You just tell the player every time you're shooting the gun, pull the trigger on that. And so, of course, then, you know, by the time they run out of bullets, you you get a key moment and they say, all right, yeah, I'll roll to hit such and such. And it's, okay, click. Shit. (laughs) That was going to be an 0-1. Damn you! <laughs> but, yeah, again, you know, it's what we were talking about before was suddenly that bit of the game, which otherwise would have been pure imagination, is sitting there in your hand. And it suddenly makes that, that click a much more visceral, terrifying thing. Yeah, a couple of different props that I've used relating to pagan publishing games have been audio props. So they put out, I don't know if they put out, I think it's usually fan stuff, some underwater recordings for use in Grace Under Pressure. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm. And also when I ran Walker in the Wastes, there were some recordings of actual Inuit chanting, which was, uh, which was a brilliant resource because you could put that on and you know talk about being at the camp. Again, it's just something different that immerses your senses in a different way. We had one very prop or, I was going to say, experience-heavy scenario that I ran at Conception. Uh, It was a Heaven and Earth game that was set around Thanksgiving dinner. Um, This all started as a conversation from Tiff after we uh, quite happily stuffed you, uh, you, Scott, at Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving dinner. I'm still digesting that now. (laughs) (laughs) I think the players on both of our games that uh, we ran of this at Conception still are. (laughs) Tiff spent about 20 hours in the relatively basic facilities at Hoburn putting together dinner. And we threw the dinner for all the players that turned up for both the evening game when I ran it and then the next morning when we had the Thanksgiving leftover breakfast. And that it was set up so that um, the game started with everyone giving thanks for everything they had in the year and that it's basically revolving around an employee of the year ceremony that basically the um, wealthiest employer in town had brought the players together um, to celebrate as a family and the fact that he was giving thanks to the fact he had someone brilliant in his staff and so on. We brought them in through a specific um, specific door, just the one entrance into the lodge, where there was a tray that had been laid out with various scones and um, cupcakes and other uh, bits and pieces, but also a series of candles and one that was set as a lantern that was uh, a centrepiece in the display. And then there were more candles that we had dotted around inside the main uh, the main lodge and said, well, you come into the main lobby and there's lots of candles like that one over there and made reference to it. And then say so you're you're then taken through into the main room for dinner. 
here's the dinner, tuck, uh, tuck in. And everyone, say, got eating and drinks flowed and so on. And then at one point, Tiff as my partner in crime, as I narrated the fact that the employee of the year is given a cash reward, comes in with a pumpkin pie and then puts it on a um, centre bit of the table that's been cleared after dinner's eaten. And so, well, congratulations, would anyone like any pie? There's a moment then later in the scenario where, the, um, where events loop back to that moment if they've done something right or done something wrong. And that then Tiff came out of the kitchen again with another pumpkin pie <laughs> and laid it on the table. The, gut, just the look from the players around the table when they just sat there with jaws open, finally, uh, I think it was Gemma who just pointed and screamed, You made a second pie! <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I do approve of handouts you can eat. Yeah, so they, they thoroughly get through everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> What purposes do handouts and props serve? We've talked a lot about the types of props and handouts that we've either seen or used at the table ourselves, but I suppose we should really try to pin down what, what the real advantage is or what the power of using these things at the table is. I think we've touched upon it a couple of times where it's, it's a physical engagement that suddenly something that you have conceptually visualised in your mind's eye suddenly becomes real. And it means that it's, you almost become part of the game rather than sitting back as an observer and quite, in some cases can be quite passive experience. It suddenly takes it to a real direct interaction. It puts you into the game. But more than that, I think, or as well as that, everything you know about the game without props is just what the GM tells you. Yeah, you only know what the room looks like. Uh, what the NPCs look like, what the, the things you find, what the monsters you encounter, whatever it is, it's just through what the, the GM says in words. And that's the only reference you've really got, unless you've got props, because props are another source of information. So you can look at the, the document. It might be a photograph. There might be things, or, or an illustration, there might be things in it that you don't see at first. I'm thinking of um, the scene in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, when the guy's looking at this photograph of a parade. And the photographs themselves aren't that remarkable. But there's, I think there's somebody in the photograph of the parade looking at the person taking the photograph, looking mm. at the camera. And after ages of the guy going through all, all this evidence, like a Call of Cthulhu investigator would do, it suddenly clicks on him, where was this photograph taken from? It must have been taken, I think, from a window, perhaps. And, and he, he, he goes to search down where the photograph was taken from and who took it. So it's these kind of cognitive leaps that you can make from yeah. the handouts that obviously the, the, key, the keeper or the, the GM can sort of say, OK, give me a, a role. OK, well, yeah, you figure out this thing about the clues. But that's not the same as you know, having the clues in your hand and, and seeing it yourself. Yeah, so it's very satisfying. You get more of a feeling of accomplishment if you actually work that out for yourself. Hmm. And that was me thinking you didn't like puzzles. <laughs> yeah, well, if we start getting down to word puzzles or worse, bloody number substitution <laughs> puzzles, yeah, then that, that's a whole different story. But something like that where you're getting a bunch of visual cues or something like that. Or even yeah. if it has, has to be pointed out to you in the end, mm. you can go, oh, Blimey, it was there in the picture right in front of us all the time and we didn't see it. <laughs> One thing I find particularly props can do better than visual or even audible description is that when, like you say, that a player only knows exactly what the ref tells them. 
So if the ref has to point out the fact that this particular NPC has a name, that there is a clock on the wall, suddenly players will go, it's been mentioned, therefore it's important. Mm. Yeah. You throw a dozen props down on the table, and with that one carefully hidden clue all amongst them, you just say, it's there. Yeah, I like the fact that you can hide things in plain sight like that. I like the fact that, yeah, as you say, you can hide the name of the bad guy in there in, in the midst of a newspaper article and it just seems to be an incidental detail or something. And, yeah, the players are never quite sure what's important. What I also really like about handouts like that is I, I'm almost as lazy as a player as I am as a GM. Uh, in investigative games, I almost never take notes. And... What handouts do for me is they give me a quick reference. So if if I can't remember the name of that important NPC, if they mention the name yeah, in the newspaper article and it mentions their next of kin and what they did for a living and stuff like that, then I can just look at that and remember it as opposed to having to ask the GM or, or you know, worse, take notes myself. <laughs> Another function I think that props can serve is to identify what's being done with that item at the table. So if, for example, going back to your example of the cap gun, Scott, hmm. if, it, if there's one gun in the game, there's this one item, if you put that down on the table, you know, in the game world, there's a gun, okay? Somebody's going to say, oh, I pick it up. And then maybe somebody else is going to say later, oh, you know, I'm going to shoot them while well, I've got the gun. And then there's a debate over, well, who's got the gun? Or, yeah. or in fact, nobody took it. You know, nobody wrote it on their sheet, maybe. So having an actual item can identify who's got that. Yeah, in one scenario, I had a cabinet with lots of items in it. I didn't have props as such, but I just had pieces of cardboard and I wrote down uh, like torch, gun, uh, spanner, things like that down on pieces of card and said, okay, there you go. There's everything that's in this cabinet. Pick up what you want. Actually take the pieces of card. And then whoever went to the cabinet next, they'd find what was left. But I would know who had got those items because, you know, there was no arguing about it. I did something similar when running Jailbreak, the game which I used the cap gun, in that, uh, I mean, there were a few other important items in that. And I'm trying to remember what they are. But, for example, I know one of them, for example, was uh, a stun gun. And someone might have that. So I actually used an electric razor, and whoever it was had that at the table. And so if it changed hands, you know, the prop would change hands so I could keep track of who had it. Similarly, one of the characters was handcuffed. So I just, you know, I didn't handcuff the player. I just put the player, you know, the handcuffs on the table in front of them. And again, if anyone else got handcuffed, they'd have it in front of, you know, in front of their, uh, the player there. And it was just a very easy reference as to you know, what everyone's status was and who was armed with what. It also lets you know how they've interacted with the prop. So if it's a magic rune, maybe like your D&D type thing, or, or Call of Cthulhu indeed, and there's a magic rune on a piece of paper, maybe it's in an envelope and they find the envelope. Okay, well, you know, they open it up, they unfold it, and if they look at the rune, it's going to affect them. Are you going to, as GM, you have to sort of say, okay... Uh, are you opening that envelope? Uh, yeah, yeah, we open it and take a look. Oh, who? Can you just tell me who exactly is mm -hmm. looking at it? And, and everybody's going to everyone's be, looking away. Yeah, yes. it's like yeah. the old thing of who's going into the room. Can you tell me who's going in first? And yeah, everybody's yeah. like, oh, whoa, whoa, no, it's not me. I pulled that fairly recently with when running Lamentations for both of you two uh, with a booklet and say, as soon as someone opens that, that's my cue to say, oh, you're doing that then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can see, it, you know, in actual reality, who is opening it and looking at it. Yeah, without having to have that leading prompt of, so, does anyone open the book? 
Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you ask that, yeah, that's just the cue for defensiveness. Mm -hmm. Suddenly every player becomes made of Teflon. (laughs) (laughs) And now, how do we go about making handouts and props? I think for this bit of the discussion, we'll, we'll pretty much just hand over to you, Matt, because I've put a little bit of work into creating some handouts and props, but on the whole, mine just tend to be typed documents, you know, written in, in Google Docs and then just printed out and handed to the players. Every now and then, I'll use a different font. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you, on the other hand, really go to town. Well, in, in a variations upon a theme manner... Um, my best friend really is Coral Draw when it comes to creating props that I then print. And I, I have a habit that I learned. I can't remember, honestly, who, who I got the inspiration from and then promptly stole. But I laminate virtually every sheet, every handout that I make for a game. Because after one instance where I was ending up reprinting sheets several times over and I knackered an ink cartridge, I thought, for fuck's sake, there must be a cheaper way of doing it than this. The answer is laminate and dry white markers. And also it means that when you run Lamentations of the Flame Princess, you can rub all the bodily fluids off mm. the sheets afterwards. It's the laminate. It's uh, <laughs> laminated. Laminated. On, the laminated uh, Lamentations. <laughs> Easy for you to say. No, it's not. <laughs> but um, I'll play around with different fonts for games. Like I'll use fonts that are um, either from the game, uh, from the core book of a game that I run, and try to integrate those into like... Um, headings on handouts use the fonts that appear in the core uh, core rulebook for said things as well and uh, try and vary them up a bit but generally keep within a similar theme it also helps me then to identify which prop goes with which game if the paperwork starts to get separated between them but yeah coral draw is my main friend there with a bit of uh, backup on photoshop yeah i don't have too many professional tools like that myself but i tend to use things like uh, inkscape and scribers for doing uh handouts and those work pretty damn well mm-hmm. uh, and uh, paint.net or the gimp i'm thinking i might look into getting an old typewriter after looking at the work that tom pleasant had done for you although it's i don't think it's on a yeah no he, he gave me the pdfs of them and they are all actually electronic okay. documents um but I mean, an actual typewritten document has a, a different feel to it because you know it's actually creating pressure on the the page and imprinting, you know, embossing it almost. So something like that'd be quite nice. Mm. Also, just even going on eBay or Google to find if you have a particular thing in mind that you want to use in a game, it's probable there is something out there you can just substitute in for it, like the um, statue of Kotlaku in the Dust Bowl game. I thought, yep. There must be a statue of this goddess out there somewhere. There must be some physical representation. I went on um, eBay, typed in Kotlaku statue or Kotlaku statuette, sculpture, and various different words that would associate with give me the physical bloody thing, and finally found a copy of it being sold in the US and then paid an inordinate amount of shipping and brought it over. And you can use all sorts of interesting physical props like that. I mean, not even to represent things in the game. I remember reading an example of someone who uh, sourced a whole load of spent bullet casings and basically used them as a way of tracking hit points in the game. Uh, (laughs) And, yeah, again, a nice physical representation. And because it was a military-focused game, it just lent that bit of atmosphere. I know there are a number of websites that will allow you to create documents. Uh, so, for example, fake telegrams, fake newspaper articles from the period and so on. And these things change the whole time, so it's probably not worth me kind of rattling a few off now. But I'll try to remember to link to a few from the show notes. Hmm. 
because they're always useful. And also, uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society you know, have a number of, of ready-made props and, and typefaces and so on that you can uh, buy from them that are really, really good for Call of Cthulhu games. Mm-hmm. Even actually um, using, raw in, uh, using your raw inspiration for a scenario can also um, turn out to be a good handout. Um, there's the scenario I've mentioned previously, the ones uh, that I've run set in, the, um, or set in a library, um, that was sparked by a news article that had appeared on the Telegraph website. Actually just doing a printout of that article and then handing that to the players worked, uh, worked quite well to set the scene initially. Yeah, actually, uh, on similar lines, I know, you know, on a few occasions when I've used newspaper articles, um, you know, particularly modern day scenarios, what I've tended to do is is search through local papers or online newspapers, find very similar articles, and then just use those as the boilerplate, uh, and then just change names and details and stuff like that, just so it reads correctly for a local newspaper article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this ties back into our earlier episode on research, I guess. So mm-hmm. if you can do your re- either do your research first and then use those actual, some of those actual documents or write your scenarios, you were just saying, Scott, and then just retrofit some details from some similar items. Mm-hmm. Yes. Having, having some surrounding paraphernalia as well, if, especially if you're setting it in a, um, your scenario in a real place, um, just having other bits and pieces that would be dotted around that people might encounter... Like again, using the library example, I went down to the uh, the British Library is one version of the scenario that I ran it as, uh, where I picked up their catalogues on what exhibitions they had playing at what particular time of the year, uh, maps of the building, and just other things that you could find in the like in the gift shop or the information desk, and then have those ready if people did go. Right, I say I want to go to the information desk. I want to pick up a, um, a map. Here you go. <laughs> I guess there's two things going on here. One is set dressing which helps to put you in the, in the feel of the scenario, you know, like things you're just mentioning there, Matt. I don't think they, you know, studying those closely was going to help me get to the root of the answer to the scenario, was it? They were just there to kind of help you immerse in the game? It, it certainly helps by demonstrating, especially with the map example, where things like the rare book section are, if they hadn't a thought that, oh, well, there might be something up there, um, to go up there in particular or that where the stacks might be in the building, how the building is constructed, and then if there are any clues when they start placing things on the map. So it can it can be a prop, but it can also be set dressing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And then, the, you know, there are the actual uh, handouts, if you like, which are really strongly tied in t- into the scenario. But I think one of the things we haven't discussed is how sometimes the props, you know, springboard new ideas. So those things you were just saying that, you know, they, they were maps and somebody looks at it and they pick up on something that you hadn't, maybe mm. even you as the GM hadn't even noticed was on the prop and they can become transfixed with that. And that I can remember one handout that I gave you, Matt, of a, well, I won't say too much. It was an NPC in a game. It was a, and it was an illustration oh, from a published God, scenario. Yeah, I remember this. <laughs> and you looked at it at the end of the first session and you were like, oh, well, that's kind of ruined it because it's pretty obvious what this is now. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, the game's over. Do you want to, you know, this, the first session's over. Do you want to tell me what you think? And what you told me was totally wrong. <laughs> and you were convinced it was right, quite yeah. justifiably. You'd kind of leapt to this conclusion that it related to a particular mythos entity um and actually it was a totally different one so you'd it'd put you off on the wrong track which i just thought was hilarious but um oh, no, look in, in hindsight yeah and then when i was playing it through thinking shit where the hell did the where the hell did these other monster come in then yeah that's great <laughs> so i think the fact that 
you're giving them something physical that they can, you know, misinterpret. And sometimes you can, as always with, you know, what players say, we can, you know, in the moment as GM, you can kind of bounce off of that and think, oh, actually, I hadn't, this wasn't in the scenario, but, you know, what you know, that player just said is, is actually cooler than what I'd got. I'm going to incorporate that. But, you know, if you've got props as well, that kind of lets them say things that you know, they wouldn't have otherwise thought of. You know, one that immediately springs to mind as well, if we're kind of naming and shaming people that have gone off on tangents with props. Yeah, go ahead. Scott with that spoon at Miskatonicon. Um, looking around going, it's got a Caduceus wrapped round, uh, wrapped round the uh, the handle of the spoon. What? And we all sat in the back of the van this? as we... Not in the slightest. Oh, it's the... Because one of the <laughs> one of the characters was a cook, so because we all, we all had the personal item that was in the van. Oh, right. And God. one of us um, picked on this spoon and went, hang on a minute, there's something written around this. And it was basically a series of what looked to be either scales or teardrops that had been engraved around the handle of this spoon. And that uh, Scott was saying, oh, it's obviously a Caduceus. It's like the snake running around, uh, running around the stick. And I was, no, it looks like a teardrop. And um, we spent the, uh, this was between when we'd found the van and going to our break in at the abandoned medical facility, arguing about what the hell was on this thing. And the guy at the end, when he took, uh, when he was like saying, well, thank you very much for playing the game. I haven't got a clue what you went on about that fucking spoon for because it was just a spoon I pulled out of the drawer. He just happened to have a nice, a nice engraving on it. <laughs> I have no memory oh, of the spoon. Neither do I. <laughs> but it sounds great. No, I, I remember that vividly because I was, say, engrossed in also trying to work out what the hell the significance of that thing was. Uh, now, the only prop I really remember from that was the broken shovel I tried to brain, brain Kiri with. Oh, well, eating one of the props as well, if I remember right. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> what, and this wasn't food? No. <laughs> no, no, this was a ritual that I didn't want anyone to perform. Eat the ritual component. Eat it. <laughs> Eat it. <laughs> what are the pitfalls and problems with props and handouts? My number one problem with handouts and props is something you touched on earlier, Matt, which is the fact that certainly in a lot of, I, I'll say particularly older published scenarios, and I'm thinking, you know, this is something that I really particularly associate with Masks of Nyarlathotep, is the fact that there are lots and lots of cool handouts in there. I mean, lots of really interesting things that I'd like to get into the player's hands. And in if you follow the scenario as written, almost every single one of them is dependent on a role. It's not the, the classic thing that people complain about with Call of Cthulhu, which is, you know, or oh, they didn't make the library use role, so the game can't continue. I don't remember there being any stumbling blocks like that. But a number of cases, it was more along the lines of, I've got these five really great handouts here, which I want to give the players, but the dice won't let me. Okay, well, <laughs> what, they, they, they're completely wasted then. Well, they're just bad players, Scott. They need to work harder. What are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I really want... What yeah. you should do with those handouts, Scott, is just put them face down on the table with handout one, handout two, handout three written on them. And, you know, the players know they're there and they've got to work for them. <laughs> you can't let them off that easy. Yeah, they've got to beg. That leads us back to Walker in the Waste, for me anyway, that 
after wandering aimlessly for a hell of a long time up one dead end street after another, we finally realised we got back on track when we found the handout. It's <laughs> 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 yeah. like just the, the cheer that went up round the table. We finally found something. We're back on track. Back on handout. <laughs> Actually, that is another function of handouts. Yeah. It's a pretty sure sign that you haven't strayed too far from the campaign or scenario <laughs> if you're being given actual handouts. Yes. But certainly now when I'm writing scenarios, I will try to make sure that there are multiple ways of getting those handouts to the players. You know, they're not just in one place, they're not just subject to one role. You know, I will try to put information in there for the keeper and sort of say, you know, if they don't find this information here, they can find it here, here and here. And, you know, if it's important, for God's sake, don't make it dependent on a role. If they haven't, if they haven't thought to, you know, look in the right place, maybe a friendly NPC slips it to them. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, if you've got a handout and you want it to get to the players, find some way of giving it to them. I mean, that's how we treat clues, is they don't get it through one route. They're going to hopefully get it through another. I mean, they might not. Not all clues they're going to get. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm minded to, to say that if they don't get all the handouts, I don't mind too much. I feel a sense of achievement in getting them, but I wouldn't want to feel that I'm just being given all of them without having achieved something. It's kind of a mark of success of, of it's a, a sense of achievement in finding them sometimes. Yeah, but at the same time, yeah, if you've got if you've gone out and you've bought a published campaign and it's got twenty handouts in it, and because of the way things go, you only get, end up giving you know four or five of them out to the players. Yeah, that's a bit of a disappointment with yeah. that kind of ratio. But if you're giving them say fifteen out of twenty, then you know that'd be fine by me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, 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 want to, I want to see these things come into play. Especially if it's something that I've then taken the time to do the graphic design for, laminate the thing, print it, make sure I've got the typography uh, set on it just the way I want it. They're going to get the thing. It's going to go across <laughs> the table regardless. There's no yeah. dice roll. There's no nothing. It's purely if the circumstance is right, they will get the handout. One word of caution, I would say, is in the overuse of handouts or the, the kind of ones that present you with copious amounts of written information to digest, some of which that might be important and a lot of which might be irrelevant. Particularly, my issue is that if I get a bunch of those handouts, I want to be given time to read them. Yeah. And when people start talking at the table, as you know, we're playing a game, so they're, they're in character and they're, they're interacting with the GM... I know in my, in the back of my mind, I want to listen to that, but also I want to read this handout. And you can't and I, do both at I the can't same process time. both at once, and I'm going to end up you know, missing one or the other. I don't know what to do about that. I guess just not too much, be, or be given time to read them. Or even you find this, okay, well, you know, take it home and read it. You know, homework! <laughs> <laughs> oh, and one, one great piece of homework that I can remember, to, if we're going to call it homework, my favourite prop in any game... Go on the oh, Mountains yes. of Madness? Yeah. <laughs> At the Mountains of Madness. Yes. By H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote a whole novella just as a prop for Beyond the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> I never did read it in the end. It was too long. Oh, Matt. Oh, <laughs> we'll do an episode about it sometime and, and twist your arm and force you to read it. It, oh, it is one of Lovecraft's great stories. Oh, I, th- I fully enjoyed the campaign. I fully enjoyed what bits of the story that I heard of what happened. Because you can you pretty much you can fill in the gaps of um, everything, what happened from the campaign. But it was just so long and I never had the time to read it. I, I can just remember going home now and, and laying in my bed that night with the duvet kind of pulled up and I could just picture myself in that cold tent 
It, it was back at the college, so it was quite cold. <laughs> I should have done it in the shed if I'd have thought that far, but you know, I didn't think that far ahead. And uh, I could just, I could almost hear the wind whistling around, and there I am, you know, maybe with a like a, a little lantern or something, reading these sheaths of papers and, and getting the whole story after having been playing the game for a, I don't know a couple of months, maybe. So you're kind of really into it. Yeah, that was that was pretty magical. One of my main problems with props, uh, certainly as a GM, is the fact that I've got a very improvisational style. I tend to set up situations rather than scenarios. I don't write full stories. I very rarely know where things are going. And as a result, it makes it very difficult to plan things like maps and handouts and props because that tends to involve a, a concept of what is going to happen that I don't possess. If it's something that's going to happen at the very start of the game, uh, if it's something that sets up the opening scene, then yes, fine, I'll quite often go off and prepare something there and hand it out. If it's general informational material uh, for the players, then yes, I can create that. But otherwise, it's pointless me even trying. Yeah, it doesn't work with an improvised game. But I think when I was reading through uh, Tom's dossier that he created for you, with all those notes and uh, documents inside it, I just thought, you know, you could just give this to the players at the start of a game and just say, or, or just give them each a copy of it and say, okay, we're going to meet on Thursday evening. You'd have had time to read the dossier. What are you going to do? Which mm. bit are you going to follow up first? Yeah, that would work. Um, that'd be great. And you could really, you know, use it as a springboard to all sorts of stories. And you'd have to be really on the ball with with what the, the handout says. And actually, that's, a, that's a, a minor point. But as a GM, you need to know really well what that handout says. Mm -hmm. So if, if it is quite a chunk of text, uh, you might have read the scenario. I've done, I've been guilty of this. I've read the scenario, but I didn't really take the time to read that handout. And maybe there's some other stuff in that that you didn't really realise. So, you know, you're going to give these handouts to your players. Make sure you really know what is in them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've talked about handouts which involve a bit of decoding and, you know, which may involve puzzles and so on. Yay! One potential problem with those is they do involve player skill rather than character skill. Not everyone has the same facility for, for example, numerical puzzles or, you know, if it's a word puzzle, someone with dyslexia might struggle with it a bit more than someone without. And, you know, th that may not be reflected by the character they're playing. So it does, it does sort of create that slight disconnect. Yeah, I think it was Neil who said one time in relation to Amber um, that if he was ever confronted by a puzzle, he just says, I solve it. Yeah. That I have a X psyche or I have whatever stat that I need to solve it and I solve it. Yeah. And, yeah, just take out the player element of it but keep it to the character. The character solves the puzzle, not the player. And now that we've talked to ourselves and sensible, let's wrap up by summing up our feelings about props and handouts. So, where do we stand on the idea of, of handouts and props? Are they good things and bad things? Are we moved to use them more now after our discussion, or have we decided to shun them forever? I'd like to try and use them more than I do, because I know I'm just lazy and it often doesn't occur to me. That little bit of work can bring quite a bit of feeling to the game. I think my, my stance is pretty clear. I love, I love them. I like putting them together. I like getting to use them in the game, but only when they're relevant. I don't throw in handouts for the hell of it, just like think, oh, I've written a scenario that I don't have a handout. Suddenly I've got to think of a handout to put in there. No, if it deserves it and if it needs it and if it is part of the story, then I will make it. Yeah, I, I've mentioned before that 
I don't tend to be a huge fan of investigative scenarios. And as a result, probably about half the stuff I've written for Call of Cthulhu has no handouts because they're not really that clue-oriented. But at the same time, yeah, sometimes for particular types of scenarios, I really get into creating those handouts, creating newspaper articles and documents and so on. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about it as a GM. As a player, yeah, I quite like them for some of the reasons we've discussed. Uh, they are atmospheric, they bring something to the game, they're good references. Uh, but, you know, as you were saying earlier, Paul, I don't want too many of them because I will get overwhelmed. I think maybe for you, Scott, maybe not clue-oriented handouts, but just setting illustrations. Mm. If we went to the infamous murder shack, <laughs> we could have had, <laughs> which which cropped up in, in a particular game, Some just some dreadful photographs of some terrible old shack in in some woods on a on a rainy day which you know i'm sure you can find oh god yeah. that just kind of give you that kind of backwards feel and and get everybody on the same page about what the setting is and, and what it looks like and you know a good photograph can communicate mm. a lot oh that's a very good point i suddenly have an idea or suddenly have an impetus now to go on google and put in crime scene photos Oh, I've, um, I've, got, I've got a whole book of crime scene photos I can lend you. He, he, he. Yeah. <laughs> mercifully, most of them are in black and white. Ah, he says mercifully. <laughs> Thankfully, I've only got a black and white printer, so that works well for me. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, this is the second episode with, which we've recorded using our shiny new microphones. Woo-hoo! We've played around a bit with the uh, <laughs> the post-processing and some of those balance issues which people mentioned last time should be smoothed out now. So. But I think we probably care more about this than the average listener does. So yes. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, mea culpa. It was my job to go out today and buy the pop filters That's from quite the right, local music Scott. shop and I forgot. But anyway, it's all down to the generosity of our Patreon backers who have... <laughs> I mean, given us really quite a staggering amount of money at this stage, uh, which we have invested in uh, hosting, in the equipment we're using to record, and we've got a few plans for some cool things to do with it later on uh, that don't necessarily involve blackjack and hookers. Um, oh. <laughs> One of the rewards that we're giving to our Patreon backers, everyone is going to receive a copy of The Blasphemous Tome, our fanzine written by the three of us. It includes a scenario, it includes various articles written by uh, all three of us, and that's going to be coming out in March. So if you want to sign up for that, then the cutoff point is going to be the 29th of February. Thank you again uh, to each and every one of you, and we have a few new backers to thank. Yeah, they keep Uh, coming out of the woodwork. Just to explain for new listeners and those of, of tender ears... We do have a pledge level on Patreon, which at $5, anybody who pledges that, we agree that we will sing to them. Yes, we literally sing their praises. I thought it was self-humiliation, personally, (laughs) but fair enough. Why not both? To begin with, I'd like to say a big thanks to Chris Miles. Yes, thank you, Chris. Indeed, thank you very much, Chris. Yes, and thank you to our friend Victoria Allen. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Vicky. Indeed, thanks very much, Fix. Thank you, Vicky. And also, thank you very much to Mark Seaford. Thank you very much, Mark. Yes, thank you, Mark, and we hope we're pronouncing your name right. Apologies if we're not. Yep, thanks, Mark. 
And now we sing. Whose daft idea was this? If you want to turn off now (laughs) and tune in next time, we quite understand. Now, uh, Frank Delventhal did suggest we do a death metal version. Fuck that. (laughs) No way. (laughs) Does anyone here play guitar? I play air guitar. Does does that count? I I, I play the ukulele badly. We could do a kind of acapella death metal. Isn't that a thing? If you'd warned me, I could have brought my ukulele and we could have done some death metal ukulele. Okay. I screamed along to revolutionary rock, but not. not I'm not, I'm not promising that as, as for next time, no, Scott. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. I should, <laughs> I should point out at this stage that I am taking the piss. I'm not playing the fucking ukulele on the podcast. You, you've said it now. It's out there. <laughs> and the first song goes out to my old friend from New York, Solomon Mincer. So, Sol, this one's for you. Pop, 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 pop. Thank you. Thank you. Solomon Mincer. Solomon, 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 And next we have a thank you to Stuart Robertson. Thank you. Can I take my fingers out of my ears now? <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to be safe again. Uh, uh. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but one of the vibrations I reached while singing vibrated my nasal cavity so much that my head is still ringing. I, I was expecting half to see you, kind of your legs crossed, levitating your, <laughs> with, your, with your hands on your, on your knees. Yeah, if you so. want to play, replay that with your subwoofer turned to maximum, <laughs> you'll experience what we experienced in the room as Scott sang that. <laughs> You're just trying to beat Keeper Murph, aren't you? That's <laughs> <laughs> Nobody beats Keeper Murph. No. <laughs> I had him on the player downstairs today that's got quite good bass. It did shake the kitchen. <laughs> this is the portion of the show where we all stand around looking at each other blankly, waiting for each other to speak. It's kind of like the ending of Reservoir Dogs, but in reverse. Well, none of us get shot. Yeah, that, that's part of it being in reverse. Okay. That, no, 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 no one's got a cap gun. You see, we haven't got the prop handy. <laughs> Nice, nice, nice bit of reincorporation there, Matt. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all just a bit stunned now, a bit uh, shaken. Yeah, we we've never sung twice in one episode. Well, we use the word sing advisedly, there, Scott. <laughs> More like wailing, <laughs> vibrating. But, but yes, that that has been an experience, and we hope it's an experience for you too. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell, <laughs> <laughs> well. It's a it's a happy but slightly worn out goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me, and and I I almost sang that just out of force of habit now. <laughs> and it's a nice, softly, well spoken, hopefully not ear damaging farewell from me. <laughs> <laughs>